This podcast was recorded on September 13th, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we are continuing our CIO series, and we have a very special guest live from New York. We have Michael Ryan, who is the CIO of UBS Global Wealth Management. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Jeff. We actually have an employee named Mike Ryan as well, so it's kind of different to be talking to a different Mike Ryan today. But maybe you can give us a little bit of background of how you got to where you are as the CIO at UBS Wealth Management. I've actually been at UBS for quite a while. Just in June, I celebrated my 35th year with the company. So I came to what was the firm's predecessor firm, Payne Weber, right out of graduate school, and then I spent my entire career here. Most of my career has been spent in a research and strategy role. So early on, I was the chief fixed income strategist for the investment bank for Payne Weber, and then as we were acquired in, by UBS, I had the opportunity to do a number of different things. And what I ultimately settled on, which I think actually turned out to be a a really terrific career option was to become the CIO for the wealth management business in the Americas. The reason I think it was so important is because I saw this continued development in terms of the wealth management business overall, but also the franchise here at UBS. So I was able to play a role in terms of helping shape that offering and helping drive some of the solutions that we have available for our clients. What do you do as your capacity as the chief investment officer overseeing for the Americas of the of UBS Wealth Management? Because we're trying to get some insight in the different roles that CIOs play at different organizations. What does a typical day, week, month look like in that role? Well, that's a good question. I would say, what does it entail? I would say a little bit of everything. When I think about my primary roles, they're as follows. First of all, I am an investment professional, so I'm one of the people who help shape our Global Investment Committee view. So I'm an active participant and contributor to that. We have regular dialogues throughout the day and throughout the weeks where we continue to view developments in the, in the macro policy and market dynamics and how we want to shift our investment positioning. So it's always an active, dynamic process with regard to remaining engaged in markets. But in addition to that, I also play a role in terms of managing a team. So here in the U.S., I have about 60 members of my team. We're part of a global team of about 270. And what we need to do then is, of course, we need to make sure that we're tasking people the right way. We need to make sure that we've got them focused on the right things and that we're getting the most out of them from a productivity standpoint and we're enhancing their potential. So the management leadership part is another key role I play. And then lastly, which is often overlooked but I think is critically important, is, is the role in communication. We can have terrific people who do great work. We can have great investment insight and, and have really thoughtful content. But unless we deliver it in a manner that, clients can understand it, appreciate it, and implement it can be lost. So another part of what I do is, is the communication side. So I'm frequently in the media, CNBC, Bloomberg, and a number of other forums, as well as the printed press. And then also I do a fair amount of travel and meetings with our clients. So I'll meet with larger groups of clients. I'll also meet with some of our key clients and our ultra high net worth clients one-on-one. I do a fair amount of traveling. So it's about connectivity and also communication. So I'd say those are the three functions that I try and balance over the, over the course of my day. 
over the course of a day. So you have to come up with strategy. You have to meet with clients. You have to communicate this. And you have to somehow interject a little media in between. Not a bad day. Every day is a little interesting. Sometimes the balance is skewed to one side or the other. But I would say those are the three principal functions. If you look at my day after day after day, that kind of averages out to be, I'd say, the three critical functions and roles that I play. So when you talk about meeting clients, you you mentioned like ultra high net worth, but when you view clients, are you talking about advisors at UBS, some of your financial advisors? Are you talking the end client at the end of the day who is buying that through that intermediary? How do you think about your client base and how do you adjust that messaging? Because you're talking about communication being a key role because there's obviously a big difference in just financial knowledge across that different spectrum. So in terms of who I meet with and who I interact with in my dialogue, I'd say it's all of the above. Now, we do make a distinction We, when you say our clients. I mean, those are the clients of the firm. So these are the people who entrust us with their wealth and do business with us. So a client is always a client. Now, I do interact frequently with advisors. They're colleagues of mine, and they are folks who, who help us in terms of fulfilling the client needs. So my interaction with them is a bit different. With them, we're, we're trying to help them understand our current positioning and views, so they can go share that with their clients. But in many instances, I'll, I'll deal directly with clients where I'll help communicate exactly what our preferences are, how they need to be thinking about the current set of market conditions, or perhaps even how they need to be thinking about things in the future that go beyond the current business cycle. So in terms of this, this interaction, this client communication, often it will go through the financial advisor, and therefore they're an important partner with us in the process. But other times it's directly to the client so we can communicate with them exactly what our thoughts are in terms of the current environment. Let's talk about that. So you have views on the marketplace or views on the financial markets in general. How do you ultimately communicate those views? Are you talking about execution through a product? Are you giving them broad asset allocation advice? How do you really communicate that for the end investor to be able to use your advice? What we do is we'll give guidance and advice both broadly in terms of asset classes, but then within asset classes, we'll give our sector and regional preferences. And then even within those sector and regional preferences, we'll give them ideas about how they want to look at individual securities. So it really goes from the very broad, high-end macro view all the way down to the micro view in terms of how you want to populate your portfolio. Now, you mentioned products, and that's something actually is not part of my mandate, simply because we, we sit behind our research wall, so it's the capital R research. So we have to be careful that we're not involved in terms of the product side, in terms of positioning or advocating for certain types of products or services. Now, that said, we need to partner very closely with other members within UBS who are having the solution set that is designed to meet those client needs. It's a very close synergistic relationship, and it's one where the work that we're done, so when we express a view whether it's an asset allocation view or sector view or or even uh, some of our stock recommendations, then there'll be an implementation that goes through what's known as our IPS organization. So that partnership is one where we allow the intellectual capital that we think is most appropriate for our clients be married to the kinds of solutions that are going to ultimately get them to the point where they want to be in terms of fulfilling their goals and objectives. So how do you deal with having such a diverse set of clients, too? So you have people who have wealth preservation as objectives. You have folks that that may be trying to save to start a family, you know, send their kids to school. People are looking to build wealth. How do you juggle all those disparate kind of objectives when trying to give this level of advice? 
I think those are very different specific objectives, but I think they all fit within a broad category, and that's what I call stewardship of wealth. So what our clients have done is they've entrusted their wealth to us, and they have different objectives around that wealth stewardship. As you said, some really want to make sure that it's more defensive and it's meant to preserve that wealth. Others are meant to try and be more aggressive, grow the wealth. And others have very specific purposes and needs where they've dedicated certain assets to either fulfilling a legacy obligation or perhaps even a short-term commitment. So what we need to do is we need to make sure that our advice and our guidance and our counsel is broadly available and consistent, yet is not cookie-cutter. So this is where we work really closely with our advisors because they have a better profile on the individuals themselves. So what we'll do often is we'll give our views on how we need to be positioned in markets, what asset classes make the most sense in terms of the structure of portfolios, how they need to be positioned, how we need to think about strategic asset allocation versus tactical asset allocation. And then it's really up to the financial advisor to work individually with the clients to determine the right mix that's going to be appropriate given what the client has identified as a time horizon, as a risk profile, and then more importantly, the predefined goals and objectives that they've already established. That's a lot. I think it is pretty amazing, too, that it you know, starts from such a top-down macro perspective and really gets into the nuance how it can be implemented for each individual person. So when you think about your approach to investing, who are some of the bigger influences on your decision-making, like how you've kind of formulated these views over time? Was it through schooling, through professors, colleagues, and, and how has that changed over time? I would say the biggest influence in terms of my career has been experience. Just I went both undergrad and graduate school at the University of Rochester. So I went to Simon School of Business, which I think, by the way, prepared me really well to be an investment professional. I think it was a very rigorous theoretical training. It was very quantitatively oriented, but it was also very focused on free markets and also about what we call not only analytics, but also in terms of evidence-based research. So for me, I felt like I came out of graduate school with a really good tool belt. And then, of course, what I've spent the last 30 years is learning how to be a better carpenter. Having the tool belt and having the best tools is one thing. Learning how to use them effectively and and experiencing not only the, the things you get right, but also the things you get wrong helps you become a better carpenter. So to me, I would say it's been the experience. It's been working with what I consider to be some of the best professionals in the business. At UBS, where I sit in the wealth management business, we have a really unique opportunity in terms of how we gain access to some of the best and brightest in the industry. We have in our own firm, the investment bank, we work very closely with, has some of the best sell-side research resources that exist. We have our own asset management firm here that I think has terrific experience, and we've got some folks who are just terrific professionals. But also, we're able to partner with some of the best in the industry because of our relationship as being the largest wealth manager in the world. And we do take those relationships very seriously. We leverage them, not only in terms of the commercial impact, but also we leverage them because of the intellectual capital we're able to access. So for us, I think that unique position as the largest wealth manager in the world has allowed us to gain exposure to people with very different thought process, very different sets of resources, different perspectives on markets different global and world views. And I think those have been the most important inputs into helping me develop as an investment professional over the years. One thing I picked up on there, you said that one thing you learned was evidence-based research. What does that mean? I hear this phrase a lot about evidence-based investing and research. I kind of think of it, typically, most research should be evidence-based. But what do you mean by that? At the end of the day, 
something has to be empirically provable or else what you're doing is you're speculating. So for us, we need to have a basis for making an investment decision. And by the way, that doesn't mean necessarily you have perfect information because there will always be periods where you don't have full exposure or full visibility to underlying developments. But what you need to continue to do is build the evidence trail. You need to continue to focus on, okay, what is the data points? What is the developments that you have to focus on in order to continue to build out your framework for making these investment decisions? So when I say evidence-based or empirical, it's the constant searching for the information that you need. And it's not just simply accepting that when someone believes there's a trend or there's a theme that just assume that it's true because others may believe it to be true. So two things on that. I really like the idea of you mentioned the theoretical training, but then you're mixing it with the empiricism and the ability to back it up with the data. What would you say is one of the bigger misnomers out there? Or I think I use that word wrong a lot of times, but what are some of the big misconceptions out there of things that people accept as fact that you can show empirically that it's just absolutely not true that would be shocking to our listeners? Well, well, that's a really good question. It's a tough question to answer because I think there are many things that we can go back and say that were assumed to be true at the moment but weren't. So one is that the only thing that matters, and it's certainly going to get focused over the course of next year, is that politics ultimately defines and determines the direction of markets. Which party wins? Who holds the legislative or the executive branches of government? That's going to determine how markets go and how economies perform. Because if you go back historically and you look at, take the U.S., for example, when you have united government under one party or the other or divided government, and you go back historically and you look at the performance differences over time for the bond market, for the stock market, there's not a lot of difference. Now, you may argue that in certain periods, under certain administrations and certain leadership, markets have done better and worse, but it's not at all evident to me that a single party is clearly better or united government is somehow better than divided government. So I think that's one misnomer that at the end of the day, you would hold all of your investment decisions until you know a definitive political outcome because rarely that's worked out very well. It tends to be pretty emotional too, right? People get very uh, committed to one party or the other and think the other one's going to destroy the world, right? Yeah, I also think what, what happens is we also have a tendency to get too caught up in the current information flow. And you talked about people have biases and certainly recency bias is one of the things we're all guilty of. And I think sometimes when we don't extend the sight lines long enough, what will happen is very, very short-term developments can seem inevitable, and they can seem as if they're unbreakable and that somehow these are predestined. And therefore, I think stepping back a bit, getting a broader perspective, and looking at things in a longer-term context can be helpful as well. It helps to kind of tease out a little bit that recency bias. Well, I mean, that's why momentum is such a powerful uh, form of investing, too, is that uh, the recency gives you that confirmation, right? And you continue to go into that trend. And it's always the saying is the trend is your friend until the end, right? That's too true. On the standpoint of thinking about how to formulate an asset allocation plan, and you're thinking about trying to have a, a good portfolio that can weather many outcomes, uh, what do you think the role of traditional and what we call these days alternative investments have in portfolios? And how do you guys think about that for your clientele? Do you still think the traditional assets are the place to be? There should be a, a 
some allocation to alternatives. There should be a larger allocation. How are you guys thinking about that as a firm today? Let me talk about the role of traditional assets and alternative investments, and again, what role each should play. There's been a view as, do I think that alternatives have a place in the portfolio? And then, of course, other people said to me, should I own any traditional investments? Why should I be in, in public markets at all? Why don't I just go to private markets? And the answer to that question, from my perspective, is whenever you basically pre-constrain an opportunity set, almost by definition, you have a probability of a worse outcome. Because once I've sort of limited myself and say, okay, I'm not going to look at this because they're out of favor right now, or I'm going to preclude these types of investments from my portfolio simply because they don't look appealing from a valuation standpoint. Once I've done that and I've used that, I've built that structure into my portfolio, I have probably sacrificed performance somewhere along the way. So I think the first thing we need to do is recognize that both traditional and alternative investments have a role to play. Now, in terms of how the distribution is, whether or not one is favored over the other, there's so many different things. Part of it is structural. What do you want to achieve in the portfolio? That can help. What are your liquidity needs? That can be an essential thing as well. But also, what's the horizon you're working through? Let's face it, there are periods of time when valuations favor one type of asset versus another. So I think all of those things have to be taken into consideration, and that's how you determine. But the notion that I'm going to freeze out, lock, or preclude a certain asset class is certainly a a view that we don't embrace. I would agree with you, from my seat at least. I think you should always be willing to to entertain uh, whatever is a, a sensible idea. And especially if there's a way to help it be either a risk reducer or just, as you said, you're capturing some other type of premium out there. And so what are the current challenges that you're getting from, well, one, from your seat that you're either hearing from clients or just as you observe the markets today? What are some of the things that are top of mind there? Well, I'd say the things that are top of mind are, first and foremost, concerns about recession. Whenever you have a deceleration in global growth as we've had, when it's been fairly well publicized and you know constantly reinforced by media messaging, that raises concern, it raises the anxiety level. And it's also not terribly surprising that when you're 10 years into an economic expansion, that people start to ask a question about the durability of an expansion. So I'd say recession risks have probably been the thing that has keep popping up. And then people are also looking for what is the tells, what is the signs, what are the indicators. And that's why there's been this focus on the shape of the yield curve and term premiums, et cetera, and PMIs, et cetera. I'd argue that if once we had, you know, half a basis point inversion in the curve that people freaked out and you started to see this elevation of of just the search for recession, more panic out there. And it kind of feels like if we are going into and we are on the precipice of a recession, it may be the most well-telegraphed recession ever. And rarely, really do the risk come from where everyone's watching. I would also say that when you go back, I think you made a really important point about the yield curve and a basis point or two negative spread between long and short rates. There's three conditions that I always, that I think, if I'm going to look for a yield curve to send powerful signals to me about the economy, I want there to be three things. One is, if there's an inversion, I want it to be a material inversion. It can't be just de minimis. Secondly, I look for it to be sustained, not episodic. And thirdly, I look for it to be fundamentally driven. So that is, in other words, it is about inflation expectations. It is about growth expectations. And it's not technical factors. So now I look at the current curve environment. What I see is a curve that looks more flat to me than inverted. When I look at it, it has been 
certain elements of this are a function of fundamentals. There's no question we've been seeing a slowing of growth. But let's not forget the, the prominent role that central bankers have played. And also remember that negative rates globally are pulling down long-term rates in the U.S. And then lastly, you know, go back to my second point, it has to be sustained. It's got to be a material inversion that's sustained, and we really haven't seen that yet. I mean, really, the only sustained inversion is the front end of the curve, right? I guess a lot of people think that the Fed will be able to cure that through uh, the expectations that people have on, uh, on front-end rates. Yeah, and I think the, you know, the rate environment now is trickier because, let's face it, central banks always play such a crucial role, but this is an environment when you have such low global rates that the expectations for central bankers are higher today than they've, they've been at any time since I've been doing this. I would agree with that. It seems that there's so much pressure and probably doesn't help that there's a lot of criticism coming from the administration about the Fed and, and some of the comments that the president's made recently, or at least over the last few months, I should say, with respect to um, their competency. But hasn't the bond market done a lot of the Fed's job? If you look at Globally, as we sit here in the middle of September, uh, in September 2018, we had the peak in kind of in global rates, at least from the local perspective. And we were about 130, 140 basis points higher than what we saw at the lows, what's a local low, really the first trading day of this month. And so hasn't the bond market done a lot of that? I mean, even if the Fed is cutting or they move policy, I mean, the market has really done a lot of that repricing without the Fed. That's true, but I think it requires follow-through by the Fed. So what you have seen is you've seen an easing of financial conditions. You've certainly seen equity markets and risk assets in general have performed well, rebounded. What you've also seen is that rates have come down, as you noted, pretty sharply. Credit spreads have narrowed a bit. So for all those reasons, I'd say, yes, the work for the Fed is being done by the market. But the notion that the Fed can simply sit on the sidelines and remember the markets are driving an anticipation of Fed action. And if we don't get follow-through, if the Fed starts to disappoint, then you can see those financial conditions start to tighten again. So I think it is important, and it's also important why the Fed feels they need to, to communicate pretty effectively what their intentions are, but also make sure that they're not disappointing the market where this is where they need to make sure that they temper some of the market expectations. Because if the market sort of front runs the Fed, then you set yourself up for some disappointment down the road. And I think perhaps one of the counterpoints right now that we've been talking about relative to central bank policy, especially with the Fed, is trade policy or the policy coming out of the administration. How much of that is counteracting, you think, what the forward-looking guidance from the Fed is trying to provide versus what's coming out of the Twitter account recently? Yes, I'd actually flip it. I look at it rather, what on the trade front is the Fed able to, to mitigate? Because I think one of the bigger risks, we talked about recession, and if you look at what are the things that the potential catalyst behind recession, it certainly is for a further escalation of the trade conflict. Now, again, this issue with trade is a little tricky because most economists, when they look at the direct economic effect of these tariffs, they would agree that it's relatively modest and it's not enough to tip the economy into recession. But where there is a concern and where this does run a deeper risk of running into a recession and having a bigger impact is the second and third order effects. So what does it mean in terms of business confidence? What does it mean in terms of intentions to go out and expand capacity, build new plants, improve infrastructure? Because if you don't have visibility on what the trade environment is going to look like and where you're going to source your products from, then you're not going to go out and, and make in key investments. And then also, at some point, you're going to be more reluctant to hire. I'm oh, sorry to cut you off. I was going to say, do you, do you think that 
some of that hesitancy and the lack of capex we've seen is not just the lack of clarity, but perhaps people saying, let's see what the outcome of the election would be. And so that the fact that we have this election cycle is really changing some of the behavior too because of the uncertainty of these policies and the fact that they were implemented with just executive order. And so I assume that they could be removed just as easily with executive order. That's certainly a part of it. But I would go back if I saw that business investment spending were robust throughout this entire expansion and that only recently decelerated, and you could argue then that it's around a political cycle. But remember, business investment spending during this expansion has been the slowest of any economic expansion on record. So I would argue that it's, it's not a single source of uncertainty that's caused business owners to refrain from investing in their own business. I think it's a number of different elements. One, I think very early on, it was just the lack of confidence in the cyclical outlook. I think after that, it was the concerns about tax reform. Remember, we were going year to year when we didn't know what the tax code would look like. Even in December, we didn't know what it would look like in January. It's not exactly an environment where it inspires confidence to go out and, and plan and make big, big investment spending decisions. Thirdly, remember, we had all this regulatory uncertainty where we had incremental regulation and incremental increased regulators, not just regulations. And these are imposing pretty big uncertainties on business. And then the last part of it, which we've talked more recently about, was the escalation of the trade conflict, and as you just alluded to, this uncertainty about the election. Now, by the way, there's always uncertainty if you're a business owner. The path before you is never clear, transparent, and burdenless. But I do think the more uncertainty and the more opaque it is the outlook, the less you'll see business owners are willing to commit. So I do think, as you point out, it could be partly due to the election, but I would also argue that these other ingredients have contributed to that slow down or that slow level of business investment spending. Are there any type of maybe single or multiple type of indicators that you look at to judge where we are in the economic cycle? First of all, I don't believe for a moment there's a single silver bullet economic indicator. I just don't. I think there are some people who will look at the things like, for example, the New Orders Index or other people who will look at the weekly claims number. We, we take a mosaic view. We, we look at a number of indicators, both official and, not, and those that are private reporting. We do try and fill out, though, a pretty broad view of the economy. That is, we don't get overly focused on one sector. We'll look at things like, you know, the senior loan officer survey. Uh, is credit expanding or contracting? We'll look at business confidence. Is that rising or falling? We'll look at consumer balance sheets. Are they in good position or bad position? So we have to look at many different inputs to get a real sense then about how the economy is doing. So what do those indicators tell you today? Not any one, but once you aggregate that from that mosaic approach. What it is telling me is that recession risks have risen over the course of the last 12 to 18 months. I think we've, we've already talked about some of the reasons why behind that. Again, the uncertainty in trade, I think also the fact that we had, remember, up until the fourth quarter of last year, we had central banks that were looking to normalize rates and tighten policy. So I do think that what you've seen is that there has been a, a clearer deceleration in growth, and therefore recession risks have risen. However, we don't think recession risks are acute. In fact, we put about a 30% probability of recession. Now, by the way, in any one year, it's usually about a 25, 20, 25% risk of recession. So they're not acute. They're a bit higher than they were. One reason why we don't foresee a recession, despite the deceleration in manufacturing activity, is we don't see the same level of imbalances and excesses that you normally get at the terminal phase of a business cycle. 
So if you think about it, at the end of a business cycle, you usually have a few things. It's either that you've had consumers are overextended, they live beyond their means and suddenly have to retrench, or you get that financial institutions have over-levered, that is, they've uh, basically done too much lending and, and they get caught and have to pull back credit availability and you have a credit crunch, or you get over-investment where businesses have simply expanded capacity too quickly and they realize demand is not going to materialize, or you get an overheating of inflation. When I look across the landscape, I see a consumer that, you know, look, there's some stress within certain areas of the consumer sector, but more people are working. We have the lowest unemployment rate in generation. Personal income growth is positive. Debt servicing costs are low. It doesn't sound to me like a consumer that's ready to roll over. I have financial institutions where, you know, there's certainly some problem spots within the financial sector, but I think there's, the systemic risks in the financial system are much lower than they've been in the past, and tier one capital ratios are high, so I think financial institutions are in relatively good shape, so I don't see a credit crunch. And then on the business investment side, I don't see a bust in spending coming, partly because we didn't get a boom. You know, we talked about how low this level of uh, spending is. And then lastly, on inflation, I'd argue it's hard to find an overheating of inflation almost anywhere right now. In fact, what we're seeing is, in the U.S. at least, we're struggling to get that 2% target that the Fed has set for inflation. So, again, are, are the recession risks higher than they were 12 or 18 months ago? Yes. Is there a base case that we forecast a recession now? You hit on manufacturing, and the manufacturing data globally has been very weak, in some cases pretty abysmal. And you know that's been a lot of the focus of the folks calling for the recession. When you look at the U.S. economy, how important is the manufacturing sector to the overall aggregate economy these days? Historically, it was a much bigger piece of it. But is it possible to go through a manufacturing recession and still not have this true economic recession? If you look at manufacturing activity in terms of U.S. economy, it's about 11% of our economy. So I think the question we want to pose is, does a contraction in the manufacturing sector lead to a recession in the economy? And the answer is not always. In fact, if you go back and you look over the course of this 10-year expansion, there have been periods when, when the PMIs and the purchasing managers indexes have dropped and that we've had this deceleration of growth, yet it did not signal that a recession was coming. I would say, as I said before, this deceleration has raised the risks from a level that we had thought was lower than normal to a bit higher than average. But again, it's not signaling to us an imminent recession. I would also argue that in a service-based economy, which is largely what the U.S. economy is, taking a straight read on manufacturing and assuming then that that's going to be the harbinger of whether or not the economy is doing well or poor, I, I think that's a little narrow perspective in terms of the growth dynamics. And I guess that all comes back to having the right feel on that mosaic of indicators that you alluded to earlier. Given all these views that you, know, you have currently on the current state of the economy and perhaps markets in general, how should investors be positioned within their portfolio? We did take some risk off the table over the course of about a month ago. And in hindsight, you know, the market's run a bit over the course of the last couple of weeks, but it hasn't like it's run that aggressively. Fortunately, we were, we were overweight for um, pretty much a little more than the first half of the year when markets had their best performance. So we have taken some risk off the table. We're fairly balanced in terms of our views. We have a, a modest underweight in equities. And our preferences there are we actually think the U.S. is going to be probably the best positioned in the current environment, given the fact that the Fed is taking a pole position in terms of central bank easing, given the fact that 
U.S.-based companies tend to be a bit more resilient. And also labor market conditions are stronger here, and the manufacturing deceleration has been less acute. Now, you may argue, well, are we more heavily affected by trade? Isn't the U.S. directly affected in the trade conflict? Yeah, we're one of the principal protagonists here, but remember that the U.S. economy is relatively a closed economy, less less sensitive to trade issues, while other countries that may not be directly in the line of fire between the U.S. and China, they're more clearly impacted by trade fallout. So to me, the U.S. then is positioned from an equity standpoint, it's better positioned. And also, as I said before, we think that uh, this easing of Fed policy also provides some support. The areas where we're, we're emphasizing to be a little more careful about is in the emerging markets and the non-U.S. developed equity markets. What would be one risk that you think people are, are not talking about today or that are underweighting or, or not paying enough mind in your perspective? I would say the broader risk that it's not necessarily just a, a macro risk or a financial risk, but it clearly would affect both of them, is I do think there's still a lack of clarity on what our risks are to cyber attacks and disruptions. Now, these are the kind of things that I don't think people have a really good handle on what the economic fallout would be, what it would mean for institutions, whether they're political institutions or financial institutions. So if you ask me the one thing I don't think any of us have a really clear sightline on, I would say cybersecurity. Now, of course, that's a very, very broad term. It's a very broad context. If you're asking me about a very specific financial sector risk, to me, there's sort of been this assumption that in the trade conflict that someone will inevitably blank and the cooler heads will prevail. I think that that's probably the case. I think there will be an accommodation worked out. I think the two sides will begin to have more of a dialogue. But there's always a risk in any kind of political negotiation, especially with two countries that have very, very different cultures of miscommunication, misunderstanding, and misinterpretation. So when I'm talking more narrowly, as stepping away from the big cyber picture for a moment, I would say that a miscalculation in terms of the risk of trade is, I think there's still some who are just completely dismissive of the worst outcome here, that somehow president will make sure he's got something in place before the election, and President Xi will make sure that uh, he's got something so his economy doesn't sell further. And that's probably the case, but I would say that it, there is some room on both sides for miscalculation. I'm going to ask the flip side of the previous question. Are there any opportunities out there that might be overlooked or perhaps one in the making that's brewing right now? Sam, you're always the optimist. <laughs> I'd say the one thing is that Throughout this economic expansion, I think the, the durability of the global economy has been underappreciated. We've had lots of stress points. It's been a much weaker than the average economy. Yet throughout this, the economy has somehow muddled through. Again, it hasn't been explosive or terrific growth rates, but it, it has been sustainable. It's the longest economic expansion in history. I also think there's this expectation now that because it's so long that it has to be at its end now. As I always tell people that economic expansions like bull markets are not temporal events. They're not driven by a clock nor a calendar. They're conditional events, which means that it's the conditions on the ground. And what I look at is I don't see the conditions yet that suggest to me that this expansion is at the terminal phase, and nor do I see the end of a bull market. So I'd say where if, what's the upside here is that people are just underappreciating this bull market can, can run a bit further. Now, that's great. 
Mike, it's always great to hear from you. I mean, you have just great insight. Just the, the way you deliver the messaging is, is just awesome. And so we really appreciate you taking the time to give these insights to our listeners today. So again, thanks for all that time. But before I let you leave, I've got to have one last segment that is Sam's favorite part of the show. And that favorite part is called Sherman Says. So, Mike, what we do here is I will offer up a series of prompts between you and Sherman and to which you'll provide a a top-of-mind response for that. So I'll start off with Mr. Sherman with Renewable Energy. Awesome. Over to you, Mike, with Corporate Debt Levels, U.S. Sustainable. Holiday Retail Sales, 2019. Robust. U.S. economy. Muddle through. Deficit spending. Robust. (laughs) We just hit a trillion, you know. Uh, Negative interest rate policy in the U.S. Possible, not probable. $100 oil. Possible, not probable. Piggybacking is mine. (laughs) I'll say uh, not, not in the near term. Universal basic income. Complex, interesting, but needs to be married with an elimination of other types of social programs. That's a good political answer. It's actually a very good, that's a really good answer. Yeah. yeah. Favorite beverage. Gatorade. What flavor? Red. Red. Does anybody call it by its flavor? It's just always the color. But they'll call it grape. Grape or red. Orange is the one you get away with doing that. It's true. And the final one to you, Mike, is hometown. Grew up in Queens, New York. Live on Long Island. Didn't go far from the. Didn't go far from hometown. Right, and then Rochester for school. So you're you're just kind of a local. Hometown boy. Yeah. Well, great. But again, Mike, thanks so much. Thanks for taking time out of your busy day today, especially on a Friday. Uh, we really appreciate it. Again, thanks for everything you do uh, for your clients out there. And we really appreciate the research you put out. Well, Jeff and Sam, it's been a pleasure spending the afternoon with you. And thank you so much for letting me join the show. Yeah, absolutely. So for our listeners out there, remember, you can get our podcast at the Double Line website. We can get it on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, What's that new one? Spotify now, too. We'll take feedback, too. You can follow us on the Twitter, at Sherman Show Pod is the handle, at Sherman Show Pod. And you can send us direct feedback at shermanshow at doubleline.com. That's one word, shermanshow at doubleline.com. Again, it's our guest from the CIO series, Mike Ryan. Thanks again for taking the time today. Thanks, guys.
The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Double Line entity or individual to that listener nor to constitute such person a client of any double-line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2019, Double-Line Capital.